today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. For the first time in all of eternity, he felt a separation from the Father. Remember his words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, oh, he was just quoting a psalm. No, I believe that the psalm was speaking prophetically of what Christ would declare. For all eternity past, the closeness of the Son and the Father. And yet at that moment of time, the wickedness, the filth, the perversion of all of mankind placed upon him and that separation for the first time in all of eternity took place my god my god why have you forsaken me when jesus hung on the cross he cried out my god my god why have you forsaken me as jesus bore the sins of the world holy father god could not look upon his son and for the first time ever there was a separation between god the father and god the son in today's message pastor david teaches us that because jesus bore our sin we can experience reconciliation with the Lord. Because Jesus was rejected and forsaken, we will never have to experience separation from the love of God. Now here's Pastor David with part one of today's message, The Hope of the Gospel, from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. chapter 3 as we've been working our way through uh, the book of 1 Peter. And I don't know if you recognize this or realize this, but uh, I'm sure you probably do. There are, there are places in Scripture that as you go through and you read them, man, everything just jumps out at you. The, the explanation, the understanding of it, to be able to teach those kinds of passages. And it's just a joy, it's a blessing to be able to go and just open up the Word and share those things. And it's just always, you know, just kind of a real positive and encouraging time as we look at these. And the, the, the Word is just so clear and so well laid out. And then there are times like this morning. The passage that we're about to look at is one of those passages that uh, for for some it becomes a little bit of struggle. It's, it's kind of an interesting passage, and whenever I read it and look at it, I'm reminded of another passage that Peter writes in Second Peter, in the Second Peter chapter 3. Peter writes about the Apostle Paul, and as he writes about the writings of the Apostle Paul, he says some of the things that he speaks to us of, they're really hard to understand, and I, I kind of smile when I read that and think about that, because here, Paul was a man who is uh, not only well-educated, but well-versed, uh, a very good uh, orator that, uh, again, he could stand on Mars Hill and debate with the philosophers of his age. That's the kind of man, that's the kind of education and the skill that the apostle Paul had. Now, Peter on the other side, we know what Peter's occupation was. He was a fisherman. I don't think he was quite as eloquent as 
Paul was. And as he's write, reading the writings of Paul, here he's writing and says, you know, some of the things that uh, Paul writes, it's, it's according to the wisdom that God's given him. But man, there's some things that are hard to understand. And then we get to this passage in First Peter, and we look at this, and, and I'm saying, Peter, well, this is kind of hard to understand, too. You really didn't explain exactly everything that you've got going here. And in all of that, there is a tremendous amount of variance of what uh, Bible teachers, theologians look at these passages that we're going to look at this morning and where they take them. So it's uh, what I'm calling, really, there's two places here of what I call theological difficulties. Not theological impossibilities, but they are theological difficulties that takes uh, a time to slow down and to be able to process and to work through much more than just what is written here in the passage. You really need to take it in the context of the whole Word of God. And we're going to look at it this morning. And as we look at these two things, I'm going to tell you right now, we're not going to be able to deal with them completely. We're not going to be able to deal with the fullness of the theological debate that covers either one of these areas that we're going to look at this morning. And the best thing that I can do is acquaint you to each of them uh, and and then give you what I feel, again, through my best understanding of what the word says, of the best way to be able to interpret this portion. So we are looking at 1 Peter chapter 3. And as we've gone all through 1 Peter up to this point, we now come to verse 18. So if you'd look at that with me. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits that are in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Now, the first difficulty that we're going to look at here has to do really with what happened during the time frame of when Jesus died on the cross and he was resurrected on that Sunday morning. What took place during those three days of Jesus' death? Where did he go? What did he do? And why? The second difficulty ties into the first through that connection that he has where he speaks there the uh, of Noah and, and Peter's phrase there where he says a few, that is eight souls were saved through water. It has to do with the ordinance of baptism. And in verse 21 and 22, we read these words. Whereas he said that those eight souls were saved through water, he goes on to say, there is also an antitype which now saves, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. The turmoil or the, the difficult portion of this particular verse is that little phrase that says that there is an antitype which now saves us, baptism. So we have to ask the question. What is baptism? Does it save us? Is it necessary in our salvation? 
And if not, then why do we even baptize and why do we do it the way that we do it? And there's a lot of speculations, again, uh, as to the answers of all of these questions. And we could spend a whole lot of time dealing with speculations and conjectures and assumptions. And we're going to miss entirely the clear teaching that Peter, I believe, wants to give to us, the heart of the message, which we take into the context of all that he's written. And I hope that this makes sense to you. Both of these questions, the one dealing with speaking uh, to or preaching to the spirits in prison and also this idea of this anti-type baptism which saves us. Both of these are worth deeper study. The problem is, is we're not going to be able to cover all of that this morning. As a matter of fact, we're going to break them uh, up into two different sessions. In the first passage... I believe personally that it's a great declaration of the very basis of the gospel. It's the basis of all that we do as a church, and it's the basis of the very hope that we have in Christ. Peter writes to us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. One writer said in in reference to verse 18, he says it's one of the shortest and simplest and yet one of the richest summaries given in the New Testament of the meaning of the cross of Christ. Just right there, so intense, built in of all that the cross did, all that Christ did on our behalf. All of Israel's ancient sacrificial system was given and it was directed by God simply as a precursor of the fulfillment that was going to be within Christ and his death on the cross, all that that meant, all that that was uh, uh, designed and purposed for. His suffering and his death, they were the absolute embodiment of what all of that sacrificial system of the past had declared in type. Everything that God had given them through the tabernacle, through the temple, they were a type that was going to be fulfilled when Jesus himself came. Peter tells us that Jesus suffered once for sins. When we read these words, we're immediately drawn back to those hours before the crucifixion. Many of us have seen the the movie, The Passion of Christ. Many of us were moved emotionally by the intenseness of the suffering that took place there. The reality of what took place from what we read in the word where he was beaten, he was abused, he was tormented, not only by the temple guards, but also then by the Roman soldiers. And we think about the brutality of the cross and the slowness and the excruciatingly painful suffering kind of death that the cross was designed for. It was designed to be able to pull as much pain and agony from the one being executed for as long a possible time as they could without killing them. And if they could get somebody on the cross to literally be hanging there for days, then the cross was doing its work. They wanted pain, they wanted agony, they wanted suffering, they wanted the length of days so that those looking at those uh, uh, the criminals that were on the cross would look at that and say, I'm going to behave myself. I'm not going to go there. But our Christ, who knew no sin, 
also hung on that very same cross through the same excruciating pain, through the same slowness of, again, the, the intenseness of the suffering that was there. Yet Peter writes that Christ suffered. I believe that it was much, much more than just that physical or even the emotional torment that the cross had. Because for him, his place in all of eternity was now put on hold. Again, as the sin of the world was placed upon him. I believe that as this happened for the first time in all of eternity, he felt a separation from the Father. Remember his words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, oh, he was just quoting a psalm. No, I believe that the psalm was speaking prophetically of what Christ would declare. For all eternity past, the closeness of the Son and the Father. And yet at that moment of time, the wickedness, the filth, the perversion of all of mankind is placed upon him. And that separation for the first time in all of eternity took place. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think it can be compared to anything else. Any kind of suffering, any kind of a pain, any kind of an emotional pull that any of us could ever experience. I believe it was well beyond even the worst of the suffering, the worst of the persecution, the worst of the torment that anyone has ever experienced. And that includes all the atrocities that went on with the, uh, the Holocaust. That includes all the atrocities that go on with the persecution of Christians over the last 2,000 years, including the stuff that's going on right now today in the other parts of this world. There are many that are suffering for the cause of Christ, but none can be compared with what our Jesus had placed on him. Not only the sin of the entire world, though he was sinless and pure, but also that very separation between he and the Father. He's the one who Spurgeon declares as the prince of sufferers, the emperor of the realm of agony. Spurgeon describes him as the one who wore grief's garment as a daily robe. Isaiah, the prophet, crowned him as the man of sorrows. Almost 150 years ago, it was in the mid to late 1800s, where a hymn writer by the name of Philip Bliss, he took those words from Isaiah 53, the man of sorrows, and he combined them with the the glory and the majesty that Jesus is also, and he penned these words. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Oh, hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Oh, hallelujah, what a savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. And now in heaven, exalted high. Oh, hallelujah, what a savior. And when he comes, our glorious king, all the ransomed home to bring, then anew his song will sing. Hallelujah, what a savior.
Not only was the suffering and death of Christ needful, but we also find throughout all of the New Testament the great importance of the resurrection. You see, if he only suffered and died, it wouldn't have been complete. Because in the resurrection, it was God's seal of approval that the suffering and the death of Christ was received by him. Therefore, God raised him from the dead. And Peter tells us right here in chapter 3 how that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. And yet he also speaks of his resurrection when he says, but he was made alive by the Spirit. The very resurrection is that awesome work of the very power of God. And at the end of this whole passage, Peter speaks again of the resurrected Christ. There in verse 22, he proclaims that the resurrected Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. And Peter is in full agreement with the Apostle Paul, who writes very similarly in Ephesians chapter 1, speaking about that power of God that worked through the resurrection. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 through 21, he speaks of that exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe. That's that same power working in us. He says it's working in us according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Beloved, this is the gospel. Christ died for our sin. He was resurrected by the power of God. He's seated in the heavenlies right now above all authority, all power. And beloved, the word also says that he's ever interceding for you and I. That's the hope of the gospel. And we need to be assured of that time and time and time again, that the death of Christ was real. It was an event that took place historically. The resurrection of Christ was real. It was an event that took place historically. And even the seating of Christ in the heavenlies, not only is it an historic reality, beloved, it's an eternal reality. An eternal reality that you and I can hold on to. Peter declares it so clear back here in First Peter when he says in verse 18 again, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That's the only way possible we have of going to God is when we go through Christ. As powerful as all of that is, I don't want to overlook another little theological impact, another powerful phrase that he has within this same verse here in 18. Peter shares in verse 18 a a, a common truth that was accepted in the first century church as absolute and true. And yet through the ages, the church has watered it down or tried to, to malign it or misinterpret it. And they've come and many today miss it. Remember there in verse 18, he says, for Christ also suffered. How many times for sin? Once for sin. Once for sin. He didn't have to do it a multitude of times. 
He doesn't again become crucified because of new needs that we have in life. He's no longer on the cross. That's done. It's completed. It's finished. He now seats in the heavenlies. He's seated in the heavenlies with God the Father. There's no other sacrifice that needs to pay for our sin. The work of Jesus was entirely, completely, and fully accomplished on the cross. His death, the payment for sin, was once for all. And the writer of Hebrews drives this home over and over and over and over again. The writer of Hebrews telling us again, Jesus Christ is again being our high priest. He says in chapter 7 of Hebrews who do, that Christ does not need daily to offer offer up sacrifices for this he did once for all when he offered up himself in chapter 9 verse 12 of hebrews he says that his sacrifice was not with the blood of goats and calves but was with his own blood he entered that most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption and then in chapter 10 verse 10 he writes we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of jesus christ once for all. And every priest standing, ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Amen. Amen. That's the hope that's ours in the gospel. The sacrifice of Christ through the shedding of his blood there on that mount called Golgotha or Calvary. It's more than eternally sufficient to pay for all of our sin, to pay for that debt that we had before a holy and a righteous God. And beloved, there's nothing, nothing, nothing that you can do to deserve it. Nothing. And there's absolutely nothing that you can do to add to it. Well, can't I do these righteous works? Oh, we're called to do righteous works. But not to add to our salvation, but because of our salvation. Because I am born again. I want to please my Lord. I want to please my Savior. And I want to walk in obedience. But in doing righteousness and doing good works, I'm not adding to my salvation. It's because the salvation is already there. And beloved, there's nothing that can replace it. There's no other means to get to the Father except through Christ. The only way. The only one. And if you put me on uh, nighttime talk TV and you ask me the question, isn't there another way to get to God? I'm going to tell you before a national audience, there is only one way. There is only one sacrifice acceptable before God for man. There is only one mediator between man and God. That is the man, Jesus Christ. Unless you come through the cross, there is no way, no way available to heaven. If you don't know your sin is forgiven this morning here in this place, you need to know that Jesus literally has his arms wide open, reaching out to you, calling for you to come unto him, all you that labor and that are heavy laden. And he is the same one who says that the one who comes to me, I will in no wise 
cast out. You see, that's the hope of the gospel. Pastor David Landry has been taking us verse by verse through the book of 1 Peter, reminding us through this letter that persecution comes to every follower of Jesus. The encouragement to keep strong in faith in those times of trial is also a challenge, though. Instead of complaining, turn to Jesus. Instead of shrinking from the hard questions, embrace them with truth. Walking in faith and with hope isn't an easy task, but Jesus has promised to walk with us and give us the words we need to speak. We're so glad you tuned in today to The Open Word, and we hope you're leaving us today feeling stronger in your faith. Before we close our time with you today, though, Pastor David would like to ask you to consider partnering with us here at The Open Word. You know I love being able to share the Word of God with you through this radio ministry. Radio programs like The Open Word are wonderful tools that God uses to advance His kingdom here on earth. But as with any ministry, there are expenses. I know God is blessing His children through The Open Word, And God has given us a vision to see this ministry expand and reach even further. Would you prayerfully consider financially supporting The Open Word? Log on to theopenword.com and simply click on the support option to help us continue to grow. Your gift, large or small, is greatly appreciated for the kingdom of God. Thanks, Pastor David. And thank you for being a part of our time here today. Pastor David will return soon to continue studying 1 Peter right here on The Open Word.